Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Now let me tell you some shit that I just learned about gardens. So all of these facts come from a long article in The New Yorker, I think it's three weeks old, by Rebecca Mead. And I was kind of conflicted about how to like present all of this stuff, so right off the bat, I'm just going to read you this shit that comes from The New Yorker article, and you w- then we'll discuss... Point number one. In the week before lockdown, sales of plants, seeds, and bulbs were reportedly up 35% from 2019. Point number two. Eight out of ten people in Britain live in a home with a private garden. British consumers spend more than $3 billion annually at garden centers. Point number three. The horticultural trade situation, founded in 1899, estimates that half of adults in the UK engage in some sort of gardening. Point number four. Some hospitals have been redesigned to incorporate gardens, spurred by findings that patients recovering from catastrophic injuries can heal more quickly if they have access to outdoor spaces with plants. Number five. Laboratory rats whose cages contain soil and logs are more energetic and sociable than those whose cages contain only a wheel, a ladder, and a tunnel. Number six. This is referring to um, the woman who is the subject of the... One of the... It's a married couple who is the subject of the article, but this is one of the women. When her sons moved out, Kay reclaimed the garden. One day in therapy, she made a striking observation. It is the only time that is while gardening... It is the only time I feel I am good. Stuart Smith, and that's that's the actual subject of the of the article. Stuart Smith explains that feeling one is good rather than merely feeling good is an example of gardening's reparative power. Number seven comes natural with the knowledge. Whenever there's a crisis, be it war or the aftermath of war or a natural disaster, we see this phenomenon of urgent biophilia. In the First World War, infantrymen created gardens in their trenches, growing not just vegetables to eat, but also flowers. We gain sustenance from nature's regeneration, says the subject of the piece. Number eight, and then we're closing out with the information points. A garden is fundamentally a process. There is change, and sometimes it is dying, and sometimes it is hibernating. One of Winnicott's most important contributions to child psychology was to define the notion of quote-unquote the good enough mother, who, by being less than perfect and by occasionally frustrating her baby's demands, helps him to learn where she ends and he begins. The reason I'm peppering you with all these little snippets is because back when I first read this article a couple Sundays ago, it made for the kind of experience that I so often have while reading The New Yorker, which is that I'll go through the whole magazine carefully, reading the little talk of the town columns up front and then all of the major features throughout. I generally don't read the fiction, sometimes I do. And while I'm going through the magazine, I will underline long passages and I'll make notes in the margins. Sometimes I learn a ton of shit 
from reading The New Yorker every week. A ton of shit. And then, later that day, I will go and I'll get a beer with a friend, and the friend will say, So, what's up? Anything new? And I will say to her, Oh yeah, I was reading The New Yorker this morning, and I learned a ton of shit. And she'll say, Cool beans, what'd you learn? And I will say, I can't remember. It always happens. I don't know. I did a podcast about this a long time ago. It's the episode called, I think, Umberto Eco and a Briefcase Full of Feces. I read The New Yorker and I feel kind of pinkies up, astute and cultured for doing it. And I learn a bunch of shit, but I never retain anything that I learn from that magazine. I love it madly, badly, sadly, and gladly. But it's gotten to a point where I'm like, why do I read this? Because I don't, I don't retain anything. Anyways, in this case, I read that particular article on a Sunday morning, and then I spent the next 24 hours feeling kind of nourished by it, nourished by the idea that I had just learned a lot about gardens, about the act of gardening. I couldn't remember what I learned, but that was okay, because every little thing that this article taught me about gardening had synthesized into a larger idea. And the larger idea was this. It's that I need to just marinate in things. I need to start marinating in things. Let me explain. I've lived in Miami my whole life, and all around Miami, there are these bougie enclaves where you can go out and stand in a garden, a big garden. And it's, it's usually got a name, Vizcaya Gardens, or Schmegma Gardens. It's, it's, it's always a location on Google Maps, a guard, or like a professional guard. I don't know what you'd call it. And you usually have to pay someone for the opportunity to stand in the gardens. But the gardens are beautiful, undeniably beautiful. You really cannot deny that these gardens are beautiful. What you can deny is that it's worth $10 to go stand in the grass. This has been an issue since I was a kid, and uh, like my parents used to like scrounge for some outdoorsy thing we could do, we could all do together on the weekends, and we'd end up at one of these gardens, and I would be like, "What am I supposed to do?" But it became a new issue when I started dating, because I'm I'm, I'm down to go on dates, of course, as yes, of course. But to be honest, I only ever want to do the same tranquil shit. I want to go to a bar. I want to sit in air conditioning. I want to have a drink and some conversation. Turns out, though. Gardens are really fucking popular, and I'm not gonna make like a wand-tapping eureka sound and tell you that I've just had an epiphany thanks to this New Yorker article and now I totally understand the allure of gardens. I honestly don't. But I've had a couple experiences over the past couple years that have taught me to appreciate what we might, for lack of a better term, call flower power. A little over a year ago, I was dating somebody who, about three months into our seeing each other, invited me over to her house because she wanted to cook us dinner for the first time, which is a very nice gesture. I wasn't thrilled at the idea because she lives with her mom and her brother, which meant that I would have to get there early and also leave kind of early. And, and there was some tension about maybe having to actually meet her family. She invites me over and I said, sounds good. I'll, I'll be there when you need me. Should I bring anything? And she said, sure, bring some wine if you want. And I said, cool beans, I will bring some wine. When should I be there? She said, seven o'clock, now. This gave me pause because she lives 20 miles west of me, which is to say 20 miles in, th in the direction of rush hour traffic, 20 miles in the direction of people migrating away from downtown, which is kind of where I live, toward the suburbs of Kendall, which is kind of where she lives. And she wanted me to be there at 7 p.m., the tail end of rush hour on a Friday. So I get in my car at around five. At one point, I have to stop at a liquor store and grab a bottle of wine. Should I have gotten the wine sometime before 5 p.m.? Yes, I should, but I'm doing it now. 
Getting the wine adds about 15-20 minutes to the drive, so I get to her place a little bit late, maybe 20 minutes late, and she is clearly not happy about this. Also, when she opens the door, she looks at the bottle of wine in my hands, and I see her expression kind of sink, and she gives me an angry look, and she turns on her heels and she walks away back into the house, and so I just follow her inside, and I close the door behind me, I follow her into the kitchen, I set the wine down, and I start talking, just trying to make conversation. And she's answering me in very clipped sentences. Clearly, she isn't just peeved that I'm here 15 or 20 minutes late. She's like really angry. She opens the refrigerator, she slams the refrigerator, she walks to the sink, and then she throws down this tray of sausage. And I said, I feel like something's wrong, are you okay? And it takes her a little while, but eventually she opens up, and she drops into the sofa, and she gives me this incredulous look, and she goes, I just honestly, I can't believe that you wouldn't have brought flowers. Now, full disclosure to you, the listener, I'm kind of manipulating you in the way that I'm telling you this story. Because I'm beginning the story by telling you what a headache it was going to be for me to get to her place. On a Friday night, at rush hour, what I really would have preferred is that she come to my place instead. And it would have taken her half the time to get to my place that it took me to get to hers. And she would have been able to hang out for as long as she wanted, and we would have had privacy. Anyways, I'm, I'm mentioning all of my troubles right out the bat and, and like pointedly not telling you about hers, which involved she, she was stressed out because she had been getting the fixings for the meal and coordinating a time so that her mom and her brother wouldn't be in the house, at least in the beginning. What I'm kind of dodging, because I feel guilty about it, is the fact that she wanted this to be like a special night, a romantic night, and I am really bad at romance, at, like, at setting a mood. She wanted me to be romantic, and the fact that I was seeing this person for three months at this point, I should have been able to like make that concession. I just don't really know how to do it. And then I just got really touchy. Like the fact that I went to the laundromat, I washed my fucking nicer clothes. I steamed this dress shirt and these dark jeans, and then I spent some money on a nicer than usual bottle of wine, and then I drove two hours through rush hour traffic so that I could join her at her house where I didn't want to be, and I understand and I respect the fact that all of that effort still brought me up short of her expectations. And I mention all that stuff as an explanation for why I got so defensive when she told me that the reason she was pouting and answering me in monosyllables and throwing me contemptuous looks across the kitchen is because I didn't also bring her flowers. And when she told me this, I was like, dude, I asked you if I should bring anything. I probably shouldn't have called her dude. <laughs> I was like, I asked what you wanted. And if I should bring anything, you told me to bring wine. So I stopped and I bought wine. If you had told me you wanted flowers, I would have gotten flowers. And then she balked at me, understandably. And she said, had I told you I wanted flowers? You're not supposed to ask somebody for flowers. Well, how, how do you expect to receive something that you don't tell anyone you want? But anyways, it was a huge blow up because she was saying that, you know, this is common knowledge. You're supposed to just know that you should bring someone flowers in this situation. And in my defense, again, I was like, I just spent two hours in traffic and $25 on wine. I walk through the door. You're mad at me because I didn't bring you something you did not ask for. And so I leave and she slams the door behind me. And then as I'm driving home, I was thinking... Maybe flowers are common sense. And I just, I, I haven't done enough conventional dating to like understand. I haven't been in enough like serious legitimate relationships to understand the importance of flowers. The lesson here, something that I'm only belatedly learning in my adult life, is that flowers really do cast a kind of romantic spell on people. And they aren't just props in cartoons and Hallmark movies. And yet, that leads me to the second thing that I learned about flower power. I am sometimes not that often, invited to people's houses for parties, but I never know what to bring, 
especially because lots of these people are in such better financial standing than I am. They are so egregiously prepared to entertain their guests that it isn't like a college party where I can walk in and be like, I brought some guac, and then everybody takes a knee. So, what do you do? Well, I've picked up a new habit. Bring them flowers. Dozen roses, maybe even bring them a vase. Unless, and this is something I'm newly mindful of since I'm at an age where all of my contemporaries are not only married, they're married to lawyers, so I have to be mindful not to bring, like, my married female friends red roses, which I'm naturally just inclined to bring because they're, like, the most visually striking. Or, if they're not the most visually striking, their appearance, the appearance of a dozen red roses, is the appearance most commensurate with my own late-night jazzy cocktail party aesthetic, which, I will concede, is largely informed by my dad's late-night jazzy party aesthetic. Fuck me. Shit. Okay. <laughs> a, a bird just landed on the window, like, right in front of my fucking face. But anyways, which I will concede is largely informed by my dad's aesthetic. My dad having reached proper adulthood in the 1980s, and thus, I am the guy who listens and sways to Lady in Red in a totally unironic way. Is there a Kenny G song on my Spotify account? Of course not. There are two Kenny G songs on my Spotify account. I used to be ashamed of the fact that there was Kenny G music on my Spotify account until in 2019 I said to myself, you know what, I'm not getting laid anyways. Let me go ahead and tell people that I... <laughs> Let me go ahead and tell people that I like Kenny G just fine. So I will go ahead and tell you that on the playlist I most listened to while writing various positions, I had both Tango and Havana by Kenny G, and I love them both unironically. <laughs> anyway, back to flowers. So I started bringing flowers to dinner party, usually white roses or some kerfluffly arrangement from Fresh Market, and that shit fucking kills. Showing up at somebody's party with flowers for the host creates a way nicer impression than seems to actually make sense. The host knows that this was not expensive, but they know that you stopped along the way just to grab something that they can appreciate. They can enjoy the smell of it, the look of it. They can enjoy the strangely nuanced way in which having a tall bunch of flowers on the surface of your kitchen really does influence the mood of the room. Like a stolen rug, it ties things together. Also, though, people are nicer to me when I bring them flowers. People who I have known my whole life are suddenly way nicer to me than they've ever been in my whole life. And like they'll text me over the ensuing days with photos of the flowers' progression. Even as the flowers are dying, photos of wilted petals and, and drooping stems with no description, and I'm like, listen, I know we're just friends, but I would, I'm gonna tell you now the same thing I would tell you if we were dating. Once it's wilted, we are done. But this made me think that the thing my ex had told me about flowers was wrong. It isn't common sense to bring flowers to somebody. Because if it's, if it's common sense, how come everyone is so much nicer to me when I bring them flowers? It must be because everybody wants flowers, but nobody brings flowers. So I can say this. I am consistently surprised by the spell that is cast by someone bringing a bunch of roses for no reason in particular. Just because they invited you over, or because you remembered that they just got recognized for something at work, whatever. Flowers are just very, very nice. Also, do a, what does not do the idea that these are just for women. Which brings me to flower point number three. One of my roommate's close friends just opened a flower shop, and my roommate has been buying flowers from her on a regular basis as like a nice, supportive gesture. And let me say, I really like having that shit in the house. Because there are nights where my roommate isn't home, and I will go and I'll read on the couch. And on nights like that, when my roommate isn't here and I'm, I'm sitting on the couch reading, it can get, it, there's this, it can get a, like a desolate feeling. Like it's just the blank black surface of our coffee table, the white terrazzo floors, the gray-blue walls, the white ceiling. There's a slightly purgatorial vibe. 
but then my roommate puts flowers in there, and the whole thing feels better. <laughs> flowers changed the whole fucking vibe of the apartment in a way that I might have needed to be 29 years old in order to appreciate. Because I think in the past few years I've been so go, 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 so like on the prowl for stimulation of one kind or another, always stressing to get shit done. I think I am only now starting to appreciate flowers in the way that I'm only now starting to understand how to enjoy a garden, which is to simply stand there in its presence. So here's, here's my whole epiphany thing. It used to be the case that I would tag along with people to this or that fancy Miami garden. I would spend $10, I would walk around with my companion for an hour or so, and then we would scurry off to a bar or a movie or a meal. Something that seemed, to me, like an actual activity. My reward for surviving this, you know, a full hour of oppressive botanical tedium. Whereas now, as I'm reaching this fretful point in my life where I have my own environment, an apartment, and where I'm also more beset than ever with, like, the tinny little orchestra of frustrations, of stressors, whatever, I'm learning the value of enjoying a space. Just getting out of my head and looking at the things around me and appreciating the fact that the outside of my head is better than the inside. And I, and I become mindful of the little things in my environment that seem to account for more, more than the sum of their petals, so to speak. And I'm thinking now that when people invite me to gardens and shit, maybe I shouldn't be interrogating myself while I'm in that garden about what good it's doing for me, and why am I here, or how can I make the best of this experience. What this New Yorker piece has opened my mind to is the idea that simply by being in the garden, I am subjecting myself to the garden, surrendering myself to the garden. The garden is calming me, it is working on my mind and my mood in ways that I'm not even beginning to appreciate because it's all under the surface. And the only way I will experience the benefits of that mood is if I sit and I clear my head and I let the garden do its thing. It seems like the simplest thing on earth, but it honestly has never occurred to me before. It seems that there are generations of studies to back up this idea that being in a garden, just being in it, is restorative. Just standing in the fucking garden. And what I'm thinking now is... Maybe that's also the case with, like, being near the ocean. Or just on a body of water. Because I have friends who invite me to go canoeing and stuff, or they'll be like, Yo, I bought some crackers. You want to sit near the river and eat them? And, and, I, and I'm always like, No, why do we have to sit near the river to eat those crackers? But now, I think I'm a little bit more of a mind to be like, Maybe it, maybe it would be nice to eat these crackers beside the river. Not because it's fun. Not because I'm even all that enchanted by the sight of the river. But maybe... Maybe there's some kind of subtle benefit to not taking every meal in front of my laptop or the TV or at a crowded countertop in a restaurant. And maybe, by the same token, something good is happening to me just in this weekly practice of reading The New Yorker, being exposed to the goings-on of different parts of the world, different businesses, different subcultures, even if, afterward, I don't remember a fucking thing. I was clearing out some space on my phone last week, and I came across this old recording. My roommate and I were, um, pitching a show that he wants to see on Disney+. Plus, A Star Wars show. A show about Jar Jar Binks. Explain this premise to me. <laughs> <laughs> but what is it? What is this? It, it's like an episode of him... And he's just being a fucking idiot. <laughs> Each episode is him. Who? George R. Binks. Like, this, I don't know. Like, he's just living life, you know? <laughs>
what was the, what was his thing? Like he became the senator, and like he's like, we should give all the power to Palpatine. <laughs> And people are like, yeah, you know. And Palpatine's like, sweet, you fucking dumb fuck. <laughs> and then Palpatine fucking destroys everything. <laughs> he just fucks everything up for decades. <laughs> it's because Jar Jar's a fucking asshole. But, okay, whatever. So you have Jar Jar. And he just, he like, I don't know, like, he just like, Misa hungry, and he just goes to, out to get lunch, and he he runs into uh he he wants he runs into Tommy Lee Jones, and he's like he's like oh oh hey there Jar Jar like he's just like I didn't think I would run out it run into you out here, you know like it's it's like that like that that that's the show. <laughs> would you watch it? Yes, of course. <laughs> In, in in like a thirty minute thing on Disney Plus with with Sean Penn. <laughs> it's George. George is the stupidest character. The most the most incredible. Like he, there's nothing to like about him. There's nothing to like about him. <laughs> he enables the emperor. <laughs> <laughs> when the re when the rebellion like rams that that fucking uh star destroyer into the other one, this ship splits open. Eighty thousand people must have died. A galactic conflict like no other, and it was fucking Jar Jar. It was fucking Jar Jar. <laughs> People fought for years. Stormtroopers went to planets and disseminated, like, villages. Horrible shit. They, the Death Star blowing up planets. Like, everything went to shit. Because <laughs> it's charged. Padme's like, I choose you, Jar Jar. This will be a good idea. There wasn't anybody else more qualified. <laughs> I've mentioned a few times now that back in August, I finished the fourth draft of a novel I've been working on since December. It's called Thousand Movie Project. And Fuck, what? <laughs> it's called Various Positions. Um, I, I, I just, I, it's very early. I just woke up. And uh, back in the middle of August, I sent out a handful of queries to some literary agents who I thought might be a, like the right fit for the book. When you submit a query to an agent, they tend to mention on their website, they tend to say that they will respond to you within four to six weeks. And in my experience, that's true. It takes about a month for them to get to your query. So right now we're in the dead center of September, a solid month following my own querying back in August, which means now is about the time that I should expect to hear back from agents. And hearing back from agents is exactly what I've been doing. 
This past Monday was my first Monday back to work for the fall semester at the college where I work in a, in a tutoring center, and I got two rejections back-to-back within the space of an hour <laughs> in my first day back. And then on Wednesday afternoon, I got another rejection. And then on Wednesday evening, I got another rejection. And I'm not feeling good about it. Obviously, no one ever feels good about that. And it's easy to fall into this slippery slope where you don't just see these... You don't just see the rejections as rejections. You see them as, like, harbingers for what your career is going to become. And, of course, I went down that slippery slope. It's hard not to. But but I caught myself on it. And I started thinking about the crime writer Patricia Cornwell. Patricia Cornwell was most famous for her series of thrillers about a forensics expert named Kay Scarpetta. They're novels, they're fiction. But at one point in the late 1990s, Patricia Cornwell undertook an independent investigation to try to find out who was the real Jack the Ripper. And she concluded, after a ton of research, that the real Jack the Ripper was an artist named Walter Sickert. And she says that his motivation is that he had a genital abnormality, namely a fistula in his penis. A fistula is a second hole in the urethra, in like the wall of the urethra, and it goes out through the side of your penis, and it can complicate penile function. Incidentally, there's a website. I only know the name of it when I see it because it's like a long acronym. Um, But whenever I I have to look something up that's related to medicine or illness, I go to that website whenever it pops up in the Google feed, in the the Google search, because it's like super peer-reviewed and professional and shit. So in preparation for this, I wanted to look into... A, you know, a penile fistula, not like gaze into a penile fistula, like the abyss of it. But when I googled it, I was like, please, God, do not show me pictures <laughs> when I google this. So I type in penile fistula, and I hover my finger over the enter key for a minute, and I'm praying that I don't have to fucking see one, and then I hit it, and no pictures come up. And the first link that pops up is from that website in question, with the really long acronym title. Click on that site, and I see this really comprehensive and authoritative-looking article about a young man who was 22 years old, and he came in for surgery on his penile fistula. What had happened is he'd had a giant pimple on the side of his penis for like two months, and when the pimple cleared up, there was a hole that went all the way through to his urethra. So it sounded kind of interesting, and they were making it sound kind of dramatic, like I was sympathizing for the kid of this story, and so I scroll down, I keep reading, and there, unannounced, are pictures of his surgery. There's a flayed penis on the center of my screen, and it is so fucking bloody, and the skin is being clamped open. Anyway, that's what I was exposed to, and I had to stand up and pace my apartment and, like, rub the back of my neck until it was warm again. But back to Patricia Cornwell and her Jack the Ripper book. Apparently most people who know about Walter Sickert argue that he was not Jack the Ripper. (laughs) Especially people in the British art world because they celebrate Sickert's work. And I haven't really dipped into this. I know that I read the book in middle school, which is kind of, kind of an early time to be reading that book. And I remember in seventh grade showing, like they had photos of Jack the Ripper's victims in the book, and I remember passing it around in class in seventh grade and getting in trouble, but then my science teacher, he took the book away, and he, like, poured over those photos until the end of class. But anyways, like I was saying, I don't really know her argument very well, but apparently the evidence that she uses to indict Walter Sickert as Jack the Ripper is is pretty dubious, and most people familiar with the Ripper case seem to believe that it must have been somebody else. 
And I was thinking, like, imagine you brought Walter Sickert, that painter, back from the dead for, like, five minutes. And he's sitting on your couch, and he's all chip-chip cheerio. And he's like, Oyen, how's me legacy looking? (laughs) And then you were like, um... Everyone knows that your dick is broken, and they think you're Jack the Ripper. And then he just sits there blinking for a few minutes, and he goes... What? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> and I, I was just thinking about that. Uh, I was just thinking about that whole situation. Patricia Cornwell having to defend her theory. We've got this artist whose legacy is either being corrected or or seriously tarnished. <laughs> We've got fans of the artist who's like, will you please stop calling him that? And also, I listened to an interview with Patricia Cornwell. Um, It was on Desert Island Discs, that BBC radio show, and it was from back in 2002 when she was was promoting the first of her two Jack the Ripper books. And in that interview, she talks about her experience as a crime reporter, visiting crime scenes and morgues, uh, interacting with dead bodies for the first time, And she tells this one particular story that really kind of rang my bell. She's talking about this body that came into the morgue, and it had been fished out of a river or something, and it was so far along in its decomposition, it was so full of bacteria that the smell of this body filled the entire building. Everybody, floors above this building, everybody was nauseated by it. And I'm sorry, incidentally, that I can't just sample the audio and let you hear her tell you this story in her own voice, but I'd get in trouble. Anyway, she's in this morgue. There's a fucked up, decayed body from the river on a slab. Everybody is grossed out, and she says to the mortician, whoever it is, a doctor on the scene, she says to this woman, how are you not too grossed out to approach this person's corpse? And so the mortician says to Patricia Cornwell, um, I look at the body on the table, and I try to remember the person that they were. I don't look at this guy on the table as a corpse that we found in the lake. I feel like I'm looking at a man who was fishing with his son. He fell overboard. Nobody found him for a while, and now he's here on my table. And if he could speak, he would be mortified, and he would apologize, and he would say, please forgive my appearance and my smell. I can't help it. Anyway, I was thinking about that about that corpse on the table and um, about all these agents rejecting my book and I was like you know what forgive my smell I can't help it (laughs) and there goes another episode I'm recording this from a dog park underneath um, the metro rail, which is not a garden, I realize, but it's similar, I guess, insofar as, like, the vegetation is manicured. Also similar in the sense that, like, parks are another place where I've just never really known what I was supposed to do here. And, yeah, I'm just trusting that if I sit outside, I will, by osmosis, pick up some sort of calming or restorative benefit. I wanted to mention that my friend R.C. has started a podcast. R.C. uh, is a musician who uh, performs under the name Speakeasy, but he started his own show called The Antisocial Socialist Club, and it's a really solid podcast. He's doing it very consistently. I think he's got three episodes up at the time that I am posting this, and it is, as you would guess, a very political 
podcast. So one of the things that I kind of champion about my friendship with RC is that it is, I think it's the only um, friendship I have which is kind of challenged by political ideas. Like, he's very, very political. Very politically literate, too. So, I don't know. I disagree with him on everything, but he also seems, in, like, more informed <laughs> about everything than I am. Um, but his podcast is up. It's really solid. I suggest you give it a shot. And also... When he started doing his podcast, right away, he was mentioning in the in the in the beginning and the end of every episode to like he was just, he was just imploring people to give his show a five star review on Am well not on Amazon on um, iTunes, which like never occurs to me to ask. On my birthday last year, I asked people to like, hey, if you want to do me a solid, go give the podcast five stars. And so there are like five five star ratings from april 24th 2020 which i think looks a little suspicious also speaking of things i just realized i just realized this morning that prisons are called penitentiaries because they're full of like penitents um people like doing penance showing penance um i thought i should share that and the reason i was thinking of penitentiaries is because i was like i'm gonna go on a very long penitent walk today and the reason it's a penitent walk is because i am hungover i was on zoom last night in a conference call with um my old circle of college friends i think there was like seven of us and um yeah i just drank too much and woke up feeling bad and i was like you know what i this is like the third time this week that i've drank until i fell asleep and I think part of the reason I'm doing that is because, like, at the end of the day, I'm exhausted, but I'm not, like, phys I'm intellectually exhausted. Like, I can't focus on shit, but my body, I, like, still have a bunch of energy. So, the penitential walk is, one, it's legit penance because I'm, like, frustrated with myself that this happened. Two, it's supposed to, like, exhaust me so that at the end of the day, I'm, like, I look at my bed and I yearn for it as opposed to feeling like I'm condemning myself to it. I feel like I was mentioning, I was just mentioning this in something that I was writing, that sleep doesn't really feel like something I... I do. It feels like something that happens to me. I never... I, I'm so seldom, like, tired enough that I, I just walk directly to my bed and I assertively say, like, okay, I am, I'm drowsy and I'm going to go to bed because I've put in a long day or whatever. I'm just always trying to get shit done. And then I go and I, I, eventually I'm like, oh, if I don't get into bed, it's going to be harder to get things done in the morning. Like, I'm going to oversleep if I don't go to bed right now. I recently wrote something on thousandmovieproject.com about my affection for the Ezra Klein show, which is a, a Vox podcast. And the way I discovered him is because I was looking for interviews with the New Yorker's editor-in-chief, David Remnick, who's like one of my heroes. I used to have a seg- like I could revive it. There's a segment on the podcast called um, David Remnick is fucking terrific. I think I did three of them. But um, the two of them were in conversation, and David Remnick was talking about he thinks sleep, he hates sleep, because it, you're just catatonic for several hours every single day getting nothing done and he was like it's kind of insulting I, I i agree with i think yeah i'm kind of insulted by the fact that i have to i have to go to sleep too because it's it's kind of like i want to be able to demonstrate that i have the wherewithal to get a million to like work all day and all night but um my body is like for no i think i should look into like the psychology of sleep like what is it actually doing to our brains because i know i've heard people say like oh we still don't know why we sleep why we need to sleep i'm not sure what the science is behind that kind of like the way that people say oh we still don't know why we yawn i wonder why we yeah for my penitent walk i broke out the fitbit also i'm gonna try to be more fit lately because i think you might remember i i had that um there's an episode of the podcast called What It Hinges On, which is about this person that I was kind of dating, not dating, in the beginning of quarantine. We were just talking a lot on Zoom, and we had met on a dating app. Um, her name is Mary, and, like, 
we've since nothing came of it and we've since like hung out and everything is fine but the other day I went to um, I went to Batch Gastropub which is kind of like TGI Fridays but a little bit nicer and um, I went to just like have a beer and write in my journal for a little bit and when I went got to the door they were like do you have a reservation and I was like for what <laughs> and he goes for a table and I was like what do you mean because <laughs> it's like it's like Fridays and um and they go, oh, we're booked up all night for the Heat game. And I was like, fuck. So I, I just had to leave. And um, I, tro- I went to North Italia, which is a little Italian bistro on, on like South Miami Avenue. And I was going to sit down and get a beer. But I saw Mary there. She was getting, I guess, dinner with her friend. And like I booked it because I looked like shit. And I was noticing she looks fucking incredible. And there was a part of me that I was like, this is, there's no way. Like, did I serious? Did I really spend three months thinking I had a chance with that person? Because she's so incredibly attractive and so incredibly fit. And I was like, I look at the moment like um, those kind of those coffee drinking worms from Men in Black. Um, so I kind of want to be more on top of my shit. Oh, another thing. I um, another thing is uh, I guess this is the last item. I applied for a job. It, it just occurred to me like to hit up the hospitality group that owned the restaurant I was working at before COVID hit, um, the restaurant that was closed, that it went out of business. I always got good um, sort of performance reviews and stuff, So, and the, the manager and I got along very well, so I'm sure I would have recommendations from within the company. So I applied to be a barback or a busser again at this, at this restaurant, kind of near my apartment, and it was weird. Over the past two weeks, like... A little over a week ago, I got an email from a some, someone at a Catholic, or who works at a Catholic middle school, and they found my um, my resume online, and they were like, "We think you would be a good fit. We, we are urgently hiring an eighth grade language arts teacher. Would you be interested?" And I was like, ah. I, "Like, I don't want to do that. I really don't want to do that." But it was like, you know, starting salary at thirty three grand, which isn't much, but like. It would have helped. And, you know, I can teach language arts to eighth graders, I guess. And so, and it was so weird because, like, as I was in the process of, you know, in talks with this middle school, I started thinking, like, oh, my God, what if they find the shit that I do online? What if they find this podcast? Obviously, like, with the first 30 seconds of this podcast, is I'm trying to sell you a dildo. So I don't think that would go over well at a Catholic school. Also, even if they didn't, like, no one in the hiring process Googled me and found it. Because um, I do think it takes some sifting to find the podcast. But, like, surely a student would end up Googling my name and finding it. And then they would tell, I would end up getting fired. And I was also thinking, like, any school. Like, also, I make those those cooking videos, uh, Garlic Incest, on Instagram. So, like, that would not go over well if I was trying to become an educator. If I was, like, working with the Utes, I'd have to stop that shit. I'd probably have to take it down. And, um, I was kind of lamenting that and dreading that and thinking, like, fuck, have I really closed all these doors for myself professionally? But then I was, like, I was dreading the prospect of doing, like, faculty meetings at a, at a Catholic middle school. Um, but then when I thought about, when I went and I applied to be a barback at this restaurant, I was, like, warming to the idea immediately. And I'm thinking, like, oh, I had fun when I worked at a restaurant. I didn't like the fact that I had to work at a restaurant, but I had a good time while I was there, for the most part. And I was thinking of those people who, like, they get a face tattoo as, because they're like, I never want to work a desk job. I know I never want to work a desk job, but I also know that the realities of life might force me eventually to work a desk
desk job. And so they get a tattoo on their face because they're like, I know this is an insurance policy because I know nobody will ever hire me for a desk job if I have, you know, a cobra tattooed on my cheek. And I kind of think that's what this podcast is for me. Like, I can't, there's the shit that I just now can't do because, like, of the things that I'm affiliated with. And it's not even like I got affiliated with, you know, suspect characters or anything. It's just shit that I did alone in my room and I put on the internet. And now it's like, okay, I can't work here. I can't work here. And earlier when I was working at um, the Big Easy, I, uh, I was working as a busser and they, they were talking about how they were going to promote me to be a waiter. And whenever I would mention this to people, people would like, they would, they'd give me a very deep nod and, they, and they'd be like, oh, that's, oh, oh, I'm glad to hear that, Alex. You'd be a great waiter. And I know, like, I appreciate the vote of confidence, but at the same time, it's like, I don't think you need to say that to me. <laughs> I know they're not suggesting that this is like the terminus of my abilities, but at the same time, I don't know. It does seem kind of funny where I'm like, sifting all this soil breaking all this rock trying to be a, a fucking writer professionally or a podcast or something and then everyone's like you know what you were born to be a fucking waiter but you know I get this vibe sometimes even from indeed.com the job searching platform because I put my resume on there and every now and then they I feel like they're just say, I think they're just making a comment about I think they're just making a comment about how undesirable I am as an employee because I'll get an email from Indeed and they're like, we found a job listing that seems to fit you perfectly. And then I open the email and it's like, you know, in box thrower at a warehouse. Okay. Anyways, I need to embark on my penitential walk. Um, and I will thank you for listening. And let me implore you, please. If you use iTunes, if you have an iTunes account, please, um, give this podcast a five-star rating and maybe write something nice i'm gonna check it up i'm gonna check up on it now and then and why don't you like put your name there too and be like hey it's because i know like i think i know pretty much everybody who listens to this actually actually that's not true it's weird dude this spot that people are listening to this podcast in like 25 countries um i look at the analytics now and then on spotify i try not to look at it i end up doing fuck me but i look at the um analytics and it shows me all the countries where this is being heard and like it's not like it's not a crazy huge audience, but it, I'm just like, why did why do the Russians care? Um, not that they shouldn't. <laughs> well, I mean, not that they should, <laughs> but um, give me. I, my point is, there there are a certain number of you who like get in touch with me, and we have like a rapport on Instagram or via email, and it's really cool. I very much enjoy it. It maybe meant let me know <laughs> when you write a review, like, hey, it's me, Steph, or whatever, because. Um, but yeah, like I mentioned earlier in the episode, I'm going to do a whole episode about the situation with my book and what's going on there. But I, I feel like it's something, I don't know, it's not its not the best situation right now. And I feel like there's no way of bringing it up that doesn't sound like a pity like pity party kind of. But um, the book's not doing great. And the, the thing that will most help me get published is if I have a robust podcast following. Um, so, or if even if it's not like a huge following, just that there's evidence that people not only listen to it, but they listen to it consistently. And they took like, you know, the two minutes out of their day. They cared enough to take the two minutes out of their day to review it favorably. That's it for me. That's it for this week. Thank you guys for listening. And I will talk to you next time.